No taxation without representation. 200 years of exploitation in the capital of this nation. No representation in the capital of this nation. 200 years of exploitation. Give the people their right to vote. Someone asked me, was it true? The voting rights of the district were long overdue. That was Sweet Honey in the Rock with Give the People Their Right to Vote. Hello and welcome to Shadow Politics, an hour-long grassroots talk show which will attempt to shine a light on the issues that you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, coming to you live from Washington, D.C., the <laughs> America's last colony. Together with my co-host, Maria Sanchez, we hope our show will start a dialogue with America about the issues that are important to you and affect the lives of all of us. So call in and join the conversation at 888-627-6008. Or you can Skype your questions to B-B-S-R-A-D-I-O-P-R. And we'd love to hear from you. So uh, let's start the show. Good evening. Maria, are you there? I am. Back on the West Coast, Michael. I know. And, you know, that, that that's great. Maria Sanchez, you're a, a, a real trooper. You came all the way to Washington, D.C., to partake in our event on Friday night, and we so appreciate having you there. It was great to see you, and it was great to have you participate. And I think the event went pretty well. What do you think? First of all, it was my privilege and an honor to attend and to see you and Mrs. Brown again and Karen and to meet Rachel and her fiancé and Taboo and also to meet Christian Gregory in person and his lady, Melissa, and also the sister how do you say her name? Aya? Ayana. Ayana. And mm. listen to her sing. And I mean, I could go on and on and on. And then there's, of course, the performance of Turn Me Loose, which I was able to see twice on Thursday night and Friday night. And I still can't believe that Edwin, the actor, can speak for two hours nonstop going in and out of the various nuances of the character of Dick Gregory. It was staggering to me. Well, he really great play. I think uh, it moved a lot of people, especially the people that came to our event, because many of them are, were, were uh, social activists and, and many of them were friends of Dick Gregory's. I mean, uh, it was nice that the actors came to our reception. Uh, they got to meet a lot of a lot of Gregory's family and friends, which I think was uh Good for them. They that made them feel good, and and uh, they got a, a big round of applause from people that knew this man because uh, he they he, they did such a good job in portraying him. Uh, what an amazing life he had, huh? Uh, Tremendous, and and they of course two hours is actually too long, and yet it didn't even get to all the things that he did. Which of course, how could you? He did it. I was thinking. He was integrating movie theaters as a student in 1953, and he lived until 2017. That's how yeah. long he was at it, and who knows what he did before 1963. But nevertheless, I mean, with 60-some years of 
and sacrificing his life and his health and, you know, who knows, putting whom else in harm's way just by him physically being in attendance or near somebody. And I I mean, just to think about this man who it's only been a year since he passed away in August of 2017 gives me the shivers that he was walking the walk in my lifetime. And you, Michael, had the opportunity and the privilege to actually interact with him on an individual basis. Yes. And he was an amazing, amazing man. And yeah, he ran for uh, mayor of Chicago. He ran for president of the United States. He, uh, uh, I listened to and, and actually participated in a show that he was in the, uh, uh, that hit his son, uh, Christian Gregory was on uh, the other day, the Kojanandi show, which is a big talk show in Washington on NPR. And, um, um, the code, the host asked the question, is there anybody out there today that's doing the kind of racially charged cutting edge humor that he did? And I think the answer to that question is yes, there are, there are several comics, but there's none that are doing it the way he did it, which is that, uh, you know, we have this whole saying in politics that you don't just talk to talk, you walk the walk. And that was him. He walked the walk. He didn't just, uh, stand up and do stand up comedy. He did it as a means to a larger goal, which was to uh, pursue issues of social justice. So he got arrested in front of the South African embassy. He got arrested on Capitol Hill for statehood. And it's funny, while we were selling tickets to this event, and and just to explain briefly, the event was to to honor him on his what would have been his 86th birthday, but also to combine it with an issue that he cared about and that I care about, statehood. But while I was calling people trying to sell tickets, trying to get them to the event, um, so many of them had stories about how they had been arrested with Dick Gregory. Many of the people at the reception the other night had actually been arrested and uh, gone to jail with him uh, over several different issues. So this was a guy that used his talent uh, to for for a broader goal, and that was uh, to to uh, seek social justice. And his daughter, his lovely, lovely daughter, uh, Ayanna Gregory, uh, still does that. She, you heard her sing briefly. Um, 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 we'll have to play some of her music on the show. She really has an amazing voice. Absolutely uh, spectacular. But, <laughs> but uh, she does a lot. I know her because she comes to social justice things. She comes to things for statehood. She comes to things for other causes. So she's following in her footsteps, her father's footsteps, and so is uh, the, his son, Dr. Christian Gregory, uh, who runs his foundation. There was such an outpouring of love for this man. It's amazing. And, and I think a whole new generation is starting to discover him. Uh, you know, people that didn't know him. Uh, there's a book being written, uh, Dr. And Schiff. I from, didn't get to meet him. And I, I, oh, I, you didn't? No. He was so, you know, you know what? He introduced himself to me or I wouldn't have known he was there because he was very quiet and he, you know, and, and he sat, um, um, you know, kind of stayed to himself uh, a little bit because he didn't know a lot of the people in the room. But, uh, but yeah, I got to talk to him for a minute and uh, he's writing a book. There's also a film that's being done that's going to be released soon. We saw a documentary on him. So there's a lot of projects going on. Uh, 
Christian Gregory is like all over the place working on these things. Uh, so it, it really is amazing. It's like a whole new generation out there that's uh, finally discovering him uh, that did, you know, because he was he lived to be 84 years old. So a lot of younger people don't know who he, who he was or what he did, but he just did amazing things. And he was an amazing guy. And what courage, huh? There's a yeah. scene in the play where he refuses to go on Jack Parr the tonight show because he 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 thinks that black comics aren't treated well on the show he tells par that thanks but no thanks because uh he wants to sit on the couch and uh they're never invited to sit on the couch and you know that took such great courage for a guy absolutely right because the tonight show that was the the you know holy grail the vehicle right yeah and he, it was the holy grail for comics what i found in my research was that the jack parr show called more than once yeah. and he declined without uh, a, a caveat or you know without giving a reason and then jack parr himself called and said i'm just really curious why you would keep denying a booking on my program and he said i'm going to be perfectly honest with you you don't let comics of color come and sit on your couch after they do their show i'm not going to participate unless i'm a part of that process and he said all right you can sit on the couch but um back in the day johnny carson that was true with him regardless of the skin color when you were a comic and you were booked on a show especially if you were a young unknown you weren't guaranteed couch time unless johnny carson liked you and then he would give the infamous wave over and then you knew you really had made it because now you're sitting on the couch talking to johnny so apparently since jack parr was johnny uh jack johnny carson's predecessor this is something that was part of the process about the host beckoning you over. But in Jack Parr's instance, I do believe it was racially motivated. Whereas at Johnny Carson's, it was, did you tickle his fancy or not? Yeah, I'm sure that's true. Uh, you know, it was a different age and, right. uh, uh, so few of us remember Jack Parr. I mean, I was, a, uh, you know, I barely remember. Him I, I only know his name and it's yeah. only because of infamy. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I, I remember vaguely seeing him as a child, but Johnny Carson was the man uh, to to me. You know, he was right. the Tonight Show, always will be the Tonight Show, even though, you know, I was lucky enough to get to know Jay Leno a little bit. Uh, and uh, I actually was with Jay Leno the night that Carson's uh, son was killed in an accident. Uh, I was invited to meet him. I went backstage and and uh, he was the most gracious guy. Uh, I just seen his I've just seen his stand up, uh, which you could take your grandmother to. I mean, yeah. it was so funny. Yeah, yeah he was. Clean. Yeah, it was so funny, but didn't use a foul word. And uh, we went backstage and uh, we're spending just sitting in his dressing room with him when all of a sudden he stood up and he said, I have to go. Um, Johnny Carson's son was just killed in a car accident. And this was, was in the days when Leno was filling in for, for Carson and they, they kind of knew he would take over, but he hadn't taken over yet. Um, um, and, uh, I had a friend that wrote jokes for Carson who invited me, I'm sorry for Leno who invited me to come, uh, meet him. And so, um, uh, One of my but, buddies was his monologue writer for mm, 20 years or something. 
15 yeah. years. Uh, and I, I've had, I've met Jalen on numerous occasions and he, you're exactly right. He's, he acts like he's, uh, an everyday guy, you know, right. with his jeans and his blue yep. jeans and his, uh, yep. blue denim top, basically uniform, like Steve jobs with his black jeans and his black top, you know, these yep. iconoclastic men and their <laughs> cookie cutter wardrobes. I wonder if there's something to it in that regard. But yeah, well, and Jay know. has lent his name to many causes. I actually had the opportunity to interview his wife, Mavis, because she's been doing amazing work for disadvantaged women throughout the world and, well, and doing you know, it when slowly I, and quietly. When I met him, uh, some woman had written him a letter in Virginia. This was at Wolf Trap was, was the, the venue in Virginia. And she wrote him a letter saying that, that she she was a fan and she tried to see him several times, but he was always sold out and she was so disappointed and, you know, she would love to get tickets to a show. So he brought her whole family. He brought her whole family, like eight people and they all came backstage and they spent time with them and they were, yeah. And they were thrilled to be there. And he took his picture. I have a picture on my office wall of the two of us because he took pictures with everybody, you know, and, he was just uh, he was just a really warm guy. But and uh, to that point, I, I you can speak to this, which I cannot accept through my research. Dick Gregory was that way with everybody, making time for anybody, making yeah. them feel like they were the only person in the room. Yes. Well, you know, I, I was going to say, and I, I didn't get a chance to say it uh, on Friday night, but my my favorite quote from the Old Testament is Micah, which is, uh, what does God ask of you but to seek justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God? And, and this very much to me embodies, the reason I was going to say it is it embodies who Dick Gregory was. He, he always sought justice. His, his son, Christian, uh, who was on the show uh, last week, uh, told me that he had a trunk full of signs, depending mm-hmm. on what event, you know, whether he was standing in front of the... <laughs> what they were picketing for. Yes, whether he was <laughs> standing in front of the South it. African embassy, uh, picketing against apartheid, or whether he was going on Capitol Hill to, to uh, uh, you know, uh, protest... Uh, uh, the lack of rights for voting rights for the District of Columbia, whatever he was, he was going to do. He also, I think, loved kindness because um, he was a very kind person. Uh, and I think people that are kind uh, really cherish kindness and, 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 and really appreciate it in others. And he was humble. The first time I met him, you know, it's funny that our paths crossed many times because he came and he spoke at my little white college outside of, of Washington, D.C. when I was a college student uh, more than 40 years ago. And he, he slayed us. I mean, we just we we laughed until we cried and he left us thinking. And then 20 years later, I went to a ceremony, a small graduation ceremony at the School of Nutrition at the University of Maryland, where I had a friend, and he was the commencement speaker in in a room full of about 200 people. And uh, so we ran into each other again. And, um, you know, he just uh, then uh, ultimately, um, you know, when I met him, I he was just I followed his career and he was an icon to me, but he acted like we had known each other our whole lives. He acted like, 
you know, he was just uh, another guy. And, gee, it was nice to see me again. Uh, so, um, you know, he, he really was really was uh, a wonderful and warm uh, person. So interesting, too, to that end, there were nuances in the play that were subtle that spoke about where he was in his life, because at one point he was an overweight man who drank daily and smoked cigarettes. Yeah, yeah. And they referenced that, uh, I think he said a quart of scotch, sometimes two a day and four pack of cigarettes. And so when the actor Dick was portraying Dick Gregory in his early stand-up days. He had a glass of scotch or whiskey in you know his hand and an unlit cigarette, affecting that he was smoking it. And then he subsequently gave. He became through nonviolence. He said, "If I'm nonviolent with people, I should be that way with animals." So he gave up all flesh, including dairy, and eggs, and uh, smoking, and lost weight. And then became a proponent of uh, a healthy lifestyle and the promoter and creator of the Bahamian diet and lifestyle. And that was part of his activism as well. Not to mention the hunger strikes, which, I mean, you put your body in. It's not a fast, as Christian distinguished last week. When you are on a hunger strike, you're putting your body in peril. Yes. You're you're eating your organs if you fast and starve yourself long enough. And yes. uh, his attorney referenced on Thursday night at the Q&A that there was one time or more that he went on a fast where he didn't even consume water. Yeah. Yeah, and she was there. If you're talking about Ife Williams, she yes, was there I am. Friday, Friday night. Yes, because uh, she's so advocate of statehood. So she was uh, – yes. she actually was his counselor. I mean, you know, legal counsel and wrote up. She said, I know about this because I wrote those documents or I know about that because I advised him on that. And I was thinking, how great is that, that she's still around and can speak of it and has seen yeah. the play, I think, over 10 times. And, and she's the, the national director of the National Congress of Black Women. So she's uh, quite an accomplished, quite an accomplished lady. We were uh, and ahead of her time. Have, and we, yeah, and we were honored to have her there. Uh, and there were several people like that. Uh, Dr. Frank Smith was there as well, and he is a former member of the city council and was uh, and uh, is the director and the, actually the guy who founded and created uh, the African American Civil War Museum. And the next time you're in Washington, we're going to have to take you there because it's just an amazing, uh, amazing place, you know, and uh, African American participation in the Civil War had almost been forgotten. Uh, historians uh, ha- had talked about it for years, but it had never been memorialized. And so, uh, Dr. Smith, uh, um, actually, when he retired from the city council here in Washington, uh, put together the 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 museum and it's just an amazing little museum that tells the story about how African-Americans fought valiantly in the civil war on the side of the North, uh, in it, in, in, you know, um, to, to, uh, um, bring about their own emancipation. And, and they were inspired by a Washingtonian, Frederick Douglass, uh, who, who said, you know, if we're gonna, if we're gonna be liberated, we need to be part of the liberation. So, uh, so it's very appropriate to have it here in Washington. What a great you know, statement. 
That you is... know, we, we, we and we fight. We, we're, we're in a fight right now over Frederick Douglass because he was actually from Maryland. He was born in Maryland. And uh, uh, but he lived much of his life in Washington, D.C. And we'll have to do a show on him one time because he was a fascinating man. He was a businessman and 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 uh, like a local sheriff. And he was uh, the the advisor to President trusted advisor to president lincoln and you know he he really he really had an interesting fascinating life but his 200th birthday i think was this year and you know and there was a fight over was it was he a washingtonian was he from maryland you know we always want to right we always want to uh, claim uh uh people uh, that are accomplished as our favorite son. We have the same problem with Duke Ellington. We have the Duke Ellington School of the Arts here because Duke uh, lived here and performed on on 8th Street, which they call the Black Broadway uh, in Washington. But he, he's also, I think, originally from New some somewhere else, maybe New Jersey, I think, and they claim him as well. So, uh, but uh, the same is true of Picasso because he was from Spain, and then he produced many of his works and his career in Paris. But when he passed away, the mural that he created for the demise of Franco, he said, "I wanted to go to Spain, but not while Franco's still alive." And sure enough, once Franco was gone. It got liberated back to Spain, <laughs> so well, they have, have that constant fight. <laughs> now, now you made me think of the story, and I have to, I have to, uh, I have to tell you that when I first started my business, I started a business like thirty-five years ago. I had a consulting business for twenty-five years, and when I first started, I didn't have many clients, and so I thought it was. Um, you know, it didn't make me look good to always be available. Whenever anybody called on the phone, there I was Johnny on the spot because I just didn't have very many clients. So I used to take a long walk every day for like an hour or two in the middle of the day. So I wasn't always available and, and it kind of got my energy up and gave me time to think. And I was walking by the Smithsonian one day. Which and Smithsonian? The, I learned on Friday there's 16 of them. Yes. And, I didn't and know that. They're not, they're not all in Washington either. Some of them, uh, there's a couple in New York. Uh, but uh, I was walking by the get what we call the West, uh, the West Wing, I think. It's the, the Gallery of Art. Okay. Uh, and uh, there's there's several galleries of art. So it's the, it's distinguished uh by being the westernmost building and I'm walking by and somebody comes up to me and says, hey, would you like to see we're about to open an exhibit uh, on Picasso and it opens today and we're giving out free tickets for you need a ticket to get in. But would you like a ticket to come in? And I said, OK. And uh, I went in and I was standing there looking at a painting, uh, you know, like with a woman with three heads on one side of her body or something, trying to figure out what the hell it was. <laughs> and I said, and this young, very attractive woman walked and I was very young in those days, walked up next to me and 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 she said something like, it's very interesting, isn't it? And I said, yes, it is. And she explained the the, the painting to me and she said uh and i said well you know a lot about this guy and she she looked at me and she said yeah he was my father and i said 
is your father? And she says, yeah, I'm Paloma Picasso. Oh, and, my gosh. And I'm here for the opening, you know, and she shook my hand. And I was just I was just stunned. I said, well, uh, he did a really great job. <laughs> said, well, I'm surprised you were so gracious because so many people, he kept breaking traditions and it took people, he was always ahead of the curve. So I've been a fan of Picasso my whole life. A, a lot has to do with him being a Spaniard. And Picasso is not his dad's name, it's his mother's name. He took uh -huh. her surname. And um, so I've read three biographies on him. I've been to the Picasso Museum actually in Paris. And then I've just finished, there's a National Geographic eight-part documentary that Ron Howard and Brian Grazer are behind it. It's called Picasso colon genius and it stars Antonio Banderas as Picasso as an adult and then there's a young Picasso and they keep going back and forth back and forth back and forth and it's absolutely riveting and revolting because of well, his philandering and having children with multiple women and you know I mean it's like oh my gosh but he was always looking for inspiration and a muse and you know, somebody that could keep him going, and he found it all the way till he died. Well, you know, I've got to tell you that I saw some of his early work, and I just don't understand a lot about art, you know, just, just to be uh, honest with you. I've never studied or anything. I, I have a nice art collection, and, and that was left to me, and I've got some beautiful pieces, but I like what I like, you know. But that's uh, what I, art is. Yeah, and I, I, I believe that. And I love Van Gogh because Van Gogh speaks to me. You know, I see it and, and I see what he was, you know, uh, what he was trying to say. And it, his work really speaks to me. But when I went to the Picasso exhibit, I saw some of his very early stuff, which was very traditional. And I thought it was beautiful. And and then I saw some of his later later works, and I just didn't get it. I, I it was surrealism and cubism. You know, he was at the forefront of that, and right. and he defied convention. And it took strength because the dollar was in conventional work, but yeah. he had a coterie of artists who said never, you know, bow down to the bourgeois lifestyle, always you know, maintain your artistic integrity. And, and he was like, yeah, but sometimes th he even did a ballet that had cubist characters over the ballerinas that they laughed at when it debuted. And then it took off, but it was touch and go there for a moment. And then Spain brought it in and the count brought it in and he said, look at it. It's a Spanish artist. How bad can it be? And, Everybody was quiet because they didn't know what the count was going to think. And then the curtain drops and there's this big silence. This is from the documentary. And then he decides to clap and stand up and then everybody else does. And it becomes a huge hit in Spain. Well, you know, I mean, I think, uh, again, just to bring it full circle, that was the thing with Dick Gregory, too, yes. you know, that that he said, you know, I have to be true to what I believe. And and yes, going on the uh, on the Tonight Show would be a, a great and I'm sure there were many other instances in his life, but they just used this as part of the play, uh, you know, would have been a big, big big uh break for him and 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 he says that in the play you know he he calls himself stupid and and you know how could i do this and and you know i'm shooting myself in the foot uh but he says i gotta be true to what i believe and that's so hard and it's so 
so there's so few people that really when push comes to shove uh can do that and 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 you know but uh it takes uh, true courage yes and i I believe true courage and and integrity and character and morals and bravery because his life was on the line for what he believed in and i don't know about you but some of his talks that he gave either in his stand-up or in his interviews this is during the play I found it uncomfortable to listen to and it was said 50 years ago or 40 years ago where he was he would scold people and call them on their bullshit basically and I thought my goodness that must have been really scary because it could have gone either way but he didn't care he wanted the truth and that was his truth, and he was going to speak his truth, whether it was socially comfortable or not. Well, and we face this in politics all the time. I'll tell you, it's really, really hard as a politician. I'll be out there on election day, and someone will come and shake my hand, and they'll say something to me like, uh, where do you stand on right to life? And I know that as soon as I say I stand for a woman's right to choose. There's a vote I'll never get. And it's hard to say it, but you've got to say it, right? It's what, it's what you it's what you believe in. And that's just a small example of that. Or to sit in front of a crowd that you know loves the, the person that you're opposed to, if it's mm-hmm. the mayor or somebody else, and say, look, they, you know, it's not that I don't like this person, but they're wrong. They're wrong. You know, I've been booed. I've had people say I've had my children cry, call me on the phone crying because of the uh, racially motivated things that have been said about me in in the Washington Post uh, when I ran uh, against uh, uh, African-Americans or uh, at one time uh, I was accused of hiding behind an African-American because uh, – you know, we had the same name and people, I still get it. A Washington Post article ran a few months ago that still accused me of getting votes from black voters because they think I'm, I'm a black candidate, which is absolutely ridiculous. You know, I've been in, in office for more than more than 12 years. But, yeah, I remember an incident where the Washington Post wrote an article on that subject with my teenage daughter, who was at a, a slumber party with her hip hop group, where she was maybe the only white kid in the room, called me and said, how can they say this about you, daddy? How can they say this about you? Uh, um, you know, and, and, uh, uh, that's the thing about politics that sometimes, you know, this is something that I accept and all the politicians I think accept, but it's very hard for the people around you that care about you because they don't sign on to, to, to see you be ridiculed and, and, and have harsh things said about you. But, uh, you know, well, it's by, but speaking of the harsh things, I'm curious because I've I in the debates, let's say, not presidential, I'm speaking local, uh, sometimes people can take the high road and sometimes people sling the mud. And a uh, member of of our local assembly was started wanted to run for Congress. and the the opponent was known for hitting below the knees. So his campaign asked me to come in and to role play as her and to do a mock debate so that I could prepare him 
for hearing things that were unspeakable. And of, I was role playing, right? I was being the actor, but I felt filthy saying the things that they told me to say. And I can't imagine what it feels like to be the recipient of that kind of vitriolic, disgusting speech. But sometimes it works. And guess what? His opponent won. Yeah, it's unfortunately it does work. And, you know, again, I think it's harder for the people that care about you because when it's you, you understand what's going on and you understand who you are. Right. So when people call me, uh, you know, in, in that instance, when they called me a racist, I know that I'm not a racist. Right. I, you know, I've worked with black people all my life. I have black friends, Native Jewish Americans. Friends. Native Americans, yeah, I I don't have a racist bone in my whole body, so it doesn't bother me on a personal level, you know, because I know it's trash talk, but it bothers those around you, as you can imagine, you know, if you were in a, uh, you know, as a man, if you were somewhere and someone insulted your wife or your girlfriend, you know, that would be very hard to take, and and that's what it's like, Uh, um, but yeah, it, it's unfortunate that, it, that it's like that. And, you know, we talk about how horrible it's gotten, how horrible it's gotten in politics today. But it's always been a part of politics, you know, that uh, Andrew Jackson, uh, his wife was was just just trashed in the press constantly. And, and just as he got elected and they were about to move into the White House, she died of a heart attack. And he always blamed the press. He said he they badgered her to death. They badgered her to death because uh, she was she was married in an arranged marriage to a cousin for one day. For one day, and the, the the marriage was never consummated, but uh, they used to refer to her, her as an adulteress because she married uh, Jackson. And in fact, to get even, I always thought this was great, to get even, he had kind of a body uh, niece uh, who was a barmaid in Washington, and he used to take her to every official function with him, and it, and it just it just drove women like Dolly Madison, who were very very proper, it just drove them up the walls. That this woman would come popping out of her skirt and and you know, or her dress, and uh, uh, you know, and 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 uh, he did it purposefully to 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 annoy them. Uh-huh. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's been a part of policy. I'm sure people said, had, had, you know, I'm sure there was some environmental candidate railing against George Washington for chopping down a cherry tree. Uh, <laughs> you, you know, so it's always been there. Well, and they uh, showed a nice uh, segment about how terrible the racism was that right. Dick Gregory endured doing his stand-up and the hecklers making their – horrific statements to him that that's those were some of the scenes that I was just like oh I I can't I can't stand it and it's that's that was 50 years ago that 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 exchange happened at the club you know and, and the thing is that I think it was very you know again subtle but but there that that the guy that was doing it in the play uh is a teacher He's right. a teacher from the South somewhere, Alabama or Mississippi. I can't remember, but he's a teacher. So they're saying, look, 
these were real people. They weren't just some dumb old redneck who had a third grade education. You know, they were educated, uh, sophisticated in, in, in many ways. Um, and um, well, and they traveled. Uh, they were in Chicago. Yeah for right. a convention so right. it, it wasn't like they were stuck you know which would suggest that they were white collar and upwardly mobile yeah but to your point still prejudiced and still racist yes and you know i think that that you know when when dick gregory says uh you know that he he had to come in contact with with his lifestyle and what he was doing and when he got over it it liberated him and you know with with the meat and the and the sugar and uh you know which he refers to as something like uh uh, commercial the cocaine co- of the, yeah, the food system, food industry, yeah. right? And and you know, and all this stuff, and it liberated him, and it made him a better person uh, uh, as a social activist, and on other levels, it wasn't just a you know a physical health thing. Well, that's the thing about racism too. I think you have to understand you you before you can can actually uh, liberate yourself, you have to understand how much impact uh, the system. And, and your upbringing is had on you and how it's affected you. And, and no matter how egalitarian you, you think you are or, or you try to be, you have to understand the role that racism plays in your life and sexism plays in your life. Uh, you know, and, and I think that, that once you, you say, yeah, I'm, I'm may not be intentionally racist, but I certainly do have some racist, uh, tendencies because I was raised in a racist society or I am misogynistic to a, to a certain extent. I have to actively try not to be a misogynist because I was brought up in a misogynistic, uh, um, society. So I think you really have to address those things to, uh, before you can tr- be truly, uh, truly liberated and truly egalitarian. And I know I did, well, um, along those lines, my family used all of those pejorative words to describe people of other, not races, but ethnicities. And I mean, they're so heinous to me now, I would never even repeat them, but they're akin to the N-word. And so Italians were this and Polish people were that and uh, Irish were this. And there was a, a euphemism that was used instead of saying that. And what and I was raised in a family of immigrants, so when I look back, I think, wow. I, but my mother sh- shares this. She says she was getting her training in Yonkers, New York, and she was a Spaniard from New Mexico with a Spanish land grant. And so someone asked her, what are you? And she said, I'm Spanish. And they said, oh, you're a spick. And she said, okay. So she didn't know that it was pejorative. So then she started introducing herself as a spick. And I think that may be why she had the innocence to use those other terms for other kinds of nationalities. But even when I was growing up, I found it heinous, offensive, and not funny. And I would look around at my family who thought, you know, how many blondes does it change, you know, take to change a light bulb, but they would use another uh, nationality in that joke. And I just thought, this isn't funny. This is putting people down. This is making gross generalizations. And now when I look back, I think, was I a nerd or was I ahead of my time? Well, you know, I, I got very, very lucky because I grew up in a family 
where all those terms were used. My mother's family, uh, you know, my grandmother, it was almost like she, she had been discriminated against when she came to this country. She was an immigrant from Italy and, and now it was her turn. You know, and it was reinforced by ignorance. You know, my grandmother didn't associate with black people. She didn't associate with with Latinos. She didn't, you know, so she never knew any, any difference, you know. But, yes, yeah, she used all those terms. And then I had my dad, my dad, who, who didn't particularly like people, you know, thought, thought a lot of people weren't worth the time. But he truly believed in his heart that good people and bad people were evenly distributed among every race, ethnic group, religious group, sex. He really thought that people were people. So he was maybe the most liberated person I've ever met in my whole life in terms of, of those things. So I got to see both sides, you know, and uh, um, it was an amazing, it was amazing to me. Um, I used to say to my mom, who believed all those stereotypes, um, she worked in a all black school and the children loved her they loved they worshipped her and uh, I would say to her mom what do you think happens when they become adults you right. know but she was <laughs> right she would see the children as children but she was afraid and fearful of, of adult black people and didn't want to you know live next door or have them in the neighborhood or you know what I mean mm-hmm. but but she adored she adored the children in fact there's a famous uh, incident in our family where she was always the secretary to the principal in an all black high school and, uh, or predominantly black high school. And, and um, uh, a kid stabbed his teacher on the way to the office. The teacher was bringing him to the office for disciplinary action. And he pulled out a knife and stabbed the guy in the stomach gym teacher and uh, as everybody ran my mother stood up from her desk and walked down to the hall and looked at the kid and said what are you doing she said give me that knife and the kid <laughs> put the bloody knife in her hand and she said now you go and sit in the office you're in a lot of trouble young man you can't stab teachers and, <laughs> and the kid walked and sat in her office because she talked to him like a mom would talk to him. And he responded like a child because he was a child. And, and it was actually a middle school, not a high school. And, uh, and then we had to beg her to test, testify against the kid. She said, oh, he comes from a broken home and blah, blah, blah. And we said, ma, he stabbed his teacher. He didn't steal milk money. He didn't cheat on a test. He stabbed it. T- you know, where do you draw the line? And Interesting. Luckily, yeah, and now luckily the case was pleaded, a uh, plea bargain, so she never had to testify. But, but you know, she she adored the kids, but still she she, and that's the insidious thing about about racism and sexism, isn't it? Is that uh, a lot of a lot of times people that that are perpetrators of it don't even understand that they are. You know, well, that's say, what that's oh, a really oh, good point. Insidious is it, and it it seeps through though with the type of language that you use, or your behavior. You don't have to admit to being racist, but you can show that you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and all you have to do is is you you know you support racist policies, or you you know, or you act a different way towards people, and uh, um, yeah, it's. Um, you know, it's, it's amazing. And, you know, one thing that other, 
that people also don't understand about racism and something that I've learned about being in politics in a city when I started in politics that was majority African-American. Now they're still the largest group, but they're not a majority anymore in Washington, D.C. But it's a two way street. It's a, you know, it's a two way street. I've certainly walked into venues where people didn't like me because I was white. They didn't know anything more about me than that. So that that's another thing that you have to realize about it, it is that, uh, it, it you know, if you, you can be a woman and be a misogynist, you can be uh, black and 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 be racist. Uh, you can you know, it's uh, it's something that we all have to stand up uh to and and face and 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 deal with i think and i think we're doing that more and more and more in america but well, and, you know you when- know there's the uh term that's also uh outdated or not applicable is reverse racism and my sons were one to say that's there's nothing reverse about it it's either racist or it isn't and right. i had when i was a sophomore in college I was a resident advisor, and there were ten, other, well, nine other resident advisors to make ten, and there were a couple, I don't know, I would say almost half were of color, and this one man said to me, because you're white and because you just spent the summer working for ITT, you are automatically suspect to me. And I said, what have I done? He goes, you don't have to do anything because you're white and you just worked for ITT. I'm going to assume the worst about you. And he was a black man. And I was like, I haven't done anything. And he said, I've got all the information I need. Well, I got to tell you, I can't tell you how many people I've undone uh, with that attitude in my political career. I live in the whitest neighborhood in Washington, D.C. I live in a house that's worth over a million dollars. Uh, and people all the time, I can't tell you the number of people that stood up and said, you don't understand, you don't understand up there in the white neighborhood in your white house and what it's like. And I go, you mean the guy that was orphaned at 15 years old that dropped out of high school that's been working full time since I was 14, that's done everything from digs, ditches to work for the president of the United States. I don't understand. Let me tell you, I understand. And then right. I'll tell them about my life. I say, you know, I used to, I used to do the utility shuffle when I was a, ch- a child. We used to pay the phone bill one month, the electric bill the next month, and the gas bill the next month because we knew it took 90 days to cut us off. I've had my car. We had cars repossessed. I've been evicted from my house. I've been, you know, uh, had to lie about my age so I could get jobs to help support my, my, my parents and, you know, my family, my mother. Uh, you know, I remember that, that, um, every week when I would come and give my paycheck to my mother, when I was, when I was 14, when I was 14, I lied and, and I worked 35 hours a week. There's a law against that. But uh, I, I lied about my age and said I was older. I actually drove a tow truck uh, a year and a half before I was too old. A year and a half before I was old enough to drive. When I was 15 years old, I had a job driving a tow truck. And they I didn't ask for your driver's license? 
Well, I actually got in a minor accident, and the insurance company asked for my driver's <laughs> license, and I said I didn't, didn't didn't have one. And my my employer jumped up at the table and said, "You you told me that you had a license," and I'll never forget. I said to him, "No, I never did. You asked me if I could drive a tow truck, and I said yes, uh, and and that was the truth." He said, "Can you drive a tow truck?" "Yes, I can. I can drive a stick shift, but I didn't have a driver's license." But uh, uh, you know, every week my mother would cry when I would give her money and she would, she would put the money to always tell me that she was going to put the money aside and give it back to me. And, and it was horrible. And, and, you know, I, I, it wasn't until I was a full grown man that I understood it. I always thought that she cried because she felt sorry for me because she felt sorry that I had to work. But Part of the reason she cried is because she felt bad for herself that yes. she had fallen so low yes. in life that she had to take money from a child to survive. Right. Uh, and, and you know, uh, so I know all those feelings. And I can tell you, that's why I know prejudice is a two-way street. Because people look at me and they say, oh, yeah, you know, there's a kid who, uh, you know, who, whose parents paid for him to get through college. And no, no, none of that was true. I, 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 every penny uh, came from me and, uh, you know, I've been pretty much been on my own since I was 14 years old and, um, not that I didn't have help, you know, I had an older sister and older brother and they were very, very, uh, you know, supportive. Uh, supportive. Yes. And, and, uh, but I understand uh, more than people give me credit for when they look at me because they see me white and right. and you know living privileged. in the best part of town and privileged, yes. Right. And uh, you know, uh, it's one of the reasons I try to give back and always have given back. I've always had a volunteer job in my life, no matter what else I've done. Uh, worked in a soup kitchen or or been a community organizer or or, or something else because I believe, as Kennedy said. Uh, that to whom much has been given, much is expected. And, and um, you know, a lot has been given to me in life, and I realize it. It's one, the only, the only thing that I, I really bothers me about this new generation is their sense of entitlement about mm -hmm. it. You know, I wonder, I wonder sometimes if they really get how fortunate they are to live in this country and to have the freedoms they have and to have the things that are given to them uh, when they could have, uh, you know, been born anywhere in the world. Uh, we're I so think fortunate. they're not stupid, but it is their reality, which we can't fault them for yeah. since some of us created that, not mm -hmm. me and you, but the helicopter parents. And everybody's a winner and all of that other foolishness that went with that. But I truly believe that as they get older, they will gain the wisdom. It just might be delayed because they're going to learn somehow, some way, hopefully not the hard way. But yeah, life doesn't give you what you want and life is not fair. And life has its own journey, whether you're making other plans or not. Well, you know, I often say that if I if 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 I could leave my children or or the world actually with one piece of advice, if, if the most profound thing that I've ever heard in my entire life came from Mick Jagger, 
of all people, that you can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes, you find you get what you need. This is this is a really important thing as far as I'm concerned. We don't always get what we want, but uh, you know we need to try, and, and, and you're right, uh, life has its own uh, pathway that, that uh, uh, I think personally is uh, uh, guided from beyond this world, that the Lord has a lot to do with this. But uh, I think, you know, that's the thing. You have to try. You always have to try. And, and I'm a in believer the end, in the free will that, part. You know, we make the choices and then we suffer the consequences. And sometimes yeah. they're blessings and sometimes they're failures. But yeah. ultimately, it's our free will that allows us to do that. And again, the best laid plans, you can prepare all you want. And then yeah. life has its own. <laughs> <laughs> and it can be painful and it can be, uh, I mean, the losses that you incurred as a young man, who would prepare one for that? How is that fair? How is that right? Your sister dying of breast cancer so young, you know, on and on and on. But it is what it is. And those people who don't accept it are the ones they either become jaded or they they start to check out because they're defeated. And both options in my book are unacceptable. What they say is um, life is falling down, but living is getting up. Yeah, and I mean, that's very true. And I got to tell you, I was very bitter. Uh, I, I, believe I bet you had a chip on your shoulder. I had a chip on my shoulder. I thought could God, you not? God was out to get me, you know, and, and, and until I realized that how many blessings I had. And on that note, you know, we've run out of time here, Maria. I, I really, we haven't gotten around to talk to m much about uh, some of the things I want to talk about, but uh, that's okay because uh, I think, uh, you know, sometimes we need to have these conversations. And when it comes to blessings, let me just say that in the world of, of internet radio, Maria Sanchez, you're the biggest blessing I've ever received. So thank you so Michael, much for coming likewise. on every week. It's an honor uh, and a privilege. And I was so happy to see you in your element Friday night. Uh, and yeah. that just the enthusiasm that was in the room was palpable. And a few other folks that I met that I didn't mention that I'm looking forward to continuing a relationship and getting to know them better. Uh, and some of that you engineered, which I appreciated. <laughs> so it was it was really my pleasure and my honor to be able to be there. And congratulations Thanks. and statehoodnow.org and yes. the proceeds from the event Friday night yes. to begin providing seed money and continued success. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, folks, we'll see you next week, but we're going to leave you now because uh, um, of our event and our love for Dick Gregory, uh, here's Stevie Wonder with Happy Birthday. We'll talk to you next week.
Give the people their right to vote. 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 Give the people their right to vote.